Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system, with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Sandra Fieldhouse, a prison inspector. Sandra shares the challenges of announced and unannounced prison visits and the importance of having different strategies, both the male and female estates. Listen as Sandra describes her professional journey through the justice system to team leader at the inspectorate. Hi, I'm um, Sandra Fieldhouse and I'm a team leader with Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons. I actually manage the team of four inspectors who specialises in inspecting women's prisons. But because there's only 12 women's prisons in the country, we spend most of our time in men's prisons as well. Okay, and can you explain what an inspector does? Because there'll be many people listening kind of going, what? It's inspectors that go around prisons. So so what is it that you do and what does an average sort of visit look like? Well, the chief inspector has uh, the responsibility to inspect treatment conditions for anybody in prison. And, and that doesn't just include prisons themselves. It includes immigration, removal centres, any type of um, custody. So police custody is included in that as well. So an inspector typically um, spends... A whole week on site and we also send in a smaller bunch of researchers and and one inspector the week previously so in the first week okay. um the survey is undertaken which is a a survey of the prisoners views about their treatment and conditions and it covers every aspect of prison life from arrival through to resettlement so we undertake the random survey in week one and then that information gets analyzed so as an inspector um you would get allocated certain areas to look at. And just to interrupt you there, so when you get allocated areas to sort of look at, you know, just plain devil's advocate, um, do the prisons sometimes want you to see the best bits of their prisons? The prisoners will tell us that the posters have only gone up yesterday and this information wasn't around and there's application forms in that drawer but there's not been any for three months. So that's a really good point you make. We we basically announce the inspection uh, normally on the morning that we arrive. So because of COVID, we're doing it... the Friday before we arrive. But normally, if I was an inspector, I would phone the prison, sail by there in 15 minutes. Pick oh, up wow, your, it's pick, that quick. Yeah, pick up your keys, which is important bit. And then basically we, we, we have the freedom to walk, to walk anywhere in the prison, speak to anybody we want to speak to. Um, as I said, we use the survey, which is gathered in week one, just to give us a heads up. So if people are telling us that they feel unsafe on their first night then we'll spend a lot of time trying to unpick what that means for them. So we'll go and speak to prisoners who've just arrived. What is it that's good or not so good about the place? I remember 
one time um, meeting a couple of guys who just arrived and they were in total shock. And one guy had a bit of J cloth and he'd put some water on it and he was trying to clean the dirt off his pillow, you know, because the, 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 mm. the pillows are like rubber. And you could just see the bit of blue coming through all the dirts. And so the shock for them w w was amazing. So, so the inspectors go everywhere in the prison. So if I'm looking at suicide and self-harm, then I'll go speak to people who are on uh, care management plans. I'll go speak to listeners, which are the people in the prison, the prisoners who support other prisoners. Yeah. I'll speak to staff. I'll, I'll, I'll try and triangulate as much as possible the evidence to come up with some judgments. And basically we inspect against um, four healthy prison tests. And those tests, um, th those areas are grouped under headings of safety, respect, purpose activity, and then finally rehabilitation and release planning. And each area we actually give, give a score to or a judgment to. So under safety, we could judge it to be good, reasonably good, not sufficiently good or poor. And, and what we do is we weigh up all the evidence under that heading and, and we come to a judgment or a score, in other words, for that area. And we do the same for the four tests. So by the end of an inspection week, with the help of the chief inspector or deputy chief inspector, on a Thursday afternoon and a Friday, we come together as an inspection team and set out all the evidence and we talk through every aspect of prison life and we come to those four judgments. Right. And say, for instance, because I know there's been, um, you know, throughout the male estate and the female estate, sometimes there's some really appalling um, reports that come out and say that establishments really need to sort themselves out. Um, how quickly or what's the process of saying right this is terrible actually and you need to you know really improve what's then the process of holding prisons to account to try and get them to where they need to be um we have something that's called the urgent notification process so when when outcomes across the four tests are really concerning to us then then the chief inspector has the right to issue what's called an urgent notification and that's a, a letter to the secretary of state with a 28 day reply timescale to set out the concerns and, and ask for immediate action to be taken. So um, the ones that we've done uh, are where the outcomes of prisoners were so poor and often so poor for many years and often declining poorness. So going right down to the bottom of our judgments and uh, an example of that would be a few years ago where we scored uh, the poor judgment across the four tests. So an urgent notification is one way that the chief inspector can actually say to the secretary of state that this is really urgent, this is really important, you need to do something about it immediately, not, not wait. And there's other things we can do. We have another process which is called independent review of progress. So where, where we have concerns about a prison and about the treatment and conditions, but we haven't issued an urgent notification perhaps, then we can go back sooner, normally about nine months after the full inspection, we can go back and we can just take stock of what progress they're making against our recommendations. That gives us a bit of an indication of, of whether they are actually progressing, but it also enables the prison to see whether they're moving in the right direction. Okay. And I guess the tricky thing, I imagine, is some prisons will say, well, we'd love to make some progress, but actually, given the current state of affairs at the minute, we've got prison officers leaving like they've never left before. Um, some of the older officers have retired or quit because, you know, actually prisons are 
I think, more dangerous now than they've been for a while, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and they can't recruit quickly enough in order to keep... And a prison is not going to be safe if there's not enough officers who are qualified enough to be able to do their job. So do you ever find yourself in a difficult position where you're like, yes, this is really bad, and they're saying, mm. yes, well, great, we'd love more officers, we'd love more officers with the jail craft that we need, and mm -hmm. we can't, we just can't bring ourselves up? Um, the chief inspector has the responsibility to report against outcomes for prisoners. So we're independent. Uh, we provide additional scrutiny and, and we raise the bar. So although we can, we can understand the context, um, it's not for us to take that into account when we're looking at outcomes for prisoners. Okay, so you don't deal with the staff at all? We, uh, the, the chief inspector has just recently introduced uh, a section around leadership to the expectations. Uh, although we don't make an overall judgment about that section, we do comment on uh, whether the leadership is proactive enough, whether the staffing situation is helpful enough, whether HMPPS are doing enough to help with this, or whether somebody else is taking forward other bits of it. So we do we do comment nowadays on uh, different aspects of leadership, which would include the, the staff retention rates, the number of uh, prison officers who have got under a year in, uh, in post, staff training, staff welfare. Yeah, because I imagine that, you know, prisoners will feel safe or not and will hmm, not enjoy prison. But, you know, their experience of prison, surely a huge amount of that is down to staff mm -hmm. and how well run the prison is. So it's interesting that those two things are actually, from what you're saying, separated in a way. They're not, they're not separate, Um we would comment on uh, staff prison relationships under leadership, but okay. we, would, we would also comment on it. In the new women's expectations, we've actually put staff prison relationships at the heart of the safety section. So it used to be under the, the heading, which is called respect, in the men's expectations. So in, in the new women's expectations, we've taken it and made it sort of upfront under safety for those very reasons. So how can you feel safe in a prison if you're living in squalid conditions with rats running around, um, with staff who won't even respond to the very basic requests, you know, how, how can you feel safe in, in that sort of situation? Exactly. And and you um, inspect both male prisons and female prisons, but you're in charge of the team that work across the female estate. And so why is it so important? Because um, there's a gender specific nature, obviously, yeah. to the, the male estate being so different to the female estate. So can you just say a little bit about the importance of separating out and having different sort of uh, strategies maybe for inspecting the male estate and the female estate. Sure, I mean, uh, when we when we did review the women's expectations, we we kept the same healthy prison test. So the overall test of a healthy prison stays the same in terms of the four headings. But what we wanted to do was was really to spell out the differences for what why women get into crime, how women end up in prison, what 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 the consequences for a woman going to prison, and what are the challenges that she experiences in prison. And then also importantly, um, how resettlement might help her on the way out. So there's very diff different causes of offending for women. Their, their experience of life can be very different. Uh, we don't want women to go into prison and just get re-traumatised and then passed out the door again. We want the expectations to really pick up on the key things that are really important to women, such as contact with children and families. 
Okay. You also have announced visits, don't you? And unannounced visits. Is that the same in the female estate as the male estate? Because you said you'd call and then in 15 minutes you turn up. Yeah. Is that an announced visit? We we used to do announced visits, but yeah. um, some years ago, the previous chief inspector, I think we moved back to all being unannounced okay. inspections. So they can't get their paintbrushes out and get all the uh, they, they can, <laughs> bits they, and, in place. They can if they guess that we're coming. Okay. Um, so if somebody predicts that it's three years on, uh, we're sitting here, it's three years ago since we last had an inspection, I think they might be coming this year. Right. They could do some of that, but a lot of that is very easy to see through. A lot of that prisoners will tell us about, and, and a lot of that we don't take into account because it's not the the decoration that's really important to things. Yeah, and, and are you sort of welcomed when you turn up, or is it always slightly um, sort of tense? Before I became team leader, I was, an in, I was an inspector for eight years, and so I used to have the task of making that phone call and saying I'll be there in 15 minutes. And um, the response would range from quite calmness uh, to pure shock. Object <laughs> panic. <laughs> uh, where you could hear the sort of pen drop and uh, a gulp of the coffee. And, I, you know, I, I don't blame them. It's, it's, a scary, it's a scary thing. And, you know, you've arrived at work on a Monday morning thinking you're going to have a really nice week and then this inspector calls yeah. and, uh, and they turn, turn up in 15 minutes and the week, run, week one gets delivered and then you know they're coming back for the entire of week two. It, it's a really um, intense time for prison governors and the staff and, and we do realise that. So we do try and minimise the impact we have on their day-to-day job. But unfortunately, we do pop up in the strangest places yeah. and start asking the strangest of questions and... Uh, and prisons, uh, on the whole, respond to us. And uh, and now as a team leader, I find that my job is to not only coordinate the team, but also explain to the governor and the DEP as the week progresses what we're finding, why they think that might be, what they'd love to do about it, what gets in the way, um, what we think's great about the place, but what are the real weaknesses that need to become a priority. So as the week unfolds and, and progresses towards the Thursday and then into the Friday... There really shouldn't be much that's, that is a surprise to the governor, even if it is uh, negative messages. Okay. Um, and if a prison, going back to the sort of, you know, worst case scenario where a prison really needs to sort itself out, um, and there's things like a prison being dirty, isn't there? So there's things that can be, I think, rectified quite easily mm. to things that then really can't be rectified very le- very easily at all unless unless there's a cash injection from somewhere um but are you saying that a prison won't necessarily be given extra money and extra money won't be found and they just have to somehow make things better i'm trying to sort of i guess get to the root of the the solutions really for a prison if they are in that dire straits a lot of the prisons um do need massive investment particularly the older prisons that are run down you know the old victorian inner city prisons um, and so, and a lot of the women's prisons need need investment as well just in terms of living conditions a way out of day uh, we were at a prison recently where 20 women shared a space and they had two toilets and it's just it's just not decent nowadays to expect people to live in those conditions i think when we issue something like an urgent notification certainly you can see some investment sometimes to try and make things happen and there is a commitment under the female offender strategy to try and uh, improve living conditions for 
particularly for women in prison. Yeah, and is that where the 500 extra places are coming in? And you don't have to comment if it's too political. <laughs> um, but I wonder whether those 500 extra places are there, but then the old cells and the bad conditions will be taken offline. Um, what I fear mm. is there'll be an increase of capacity to 500 extra spaces, which is actually increasing the prison population by one whole prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the older, less good accommodation will still remain. But that's mm. just me being sceptical. No, no, a lot, a lot of people uh, think the same as you do. And uh, I can't answer it. It's, it's one for HMPPS to decide on whether this new accommodation is extra or new. I think that's the, that, and my hope is it's new so that the older accommodation would eventually be demolished and this new accommodation would replace it. Uh, but but I, I do understand that the projections is an increase in the women's prison population, which nobody wants to see. No, because you must see, um, as I do, you know, going in and out of prisons all the time. Um, and actually, even people who don't go in and out of prisons, it's a commonly known fact that women are being sent to prison for their own safety. Yeah. Um, and over 80% of women are in for non-violent crime. So, you know, I know that the inspectorate doesn't necessarily have the power to change those things. Um, there's lots of us on the outside campaigning to get that sort of addressed because it seems like a waste of money and the collateral damage that it does. Mm. Um, but where where do you sit on that? For a long time, we've made comments in uh, in inspection reports, particularly about women being sent to prison as a place of safety. Uh, it wasn't so long ago I was in a women's prison uh, where they had gathered some data and they were able to show us how many women um, had been sent to prison for their own protection or, in other words, place of safety. There was a, a classic example of a woman who who was threatening to commit suicide by throwing herself off, off of a bridge. And eventually the police charged her with causing a public nuisance. Mm. Um, and she got remanded into custody. And it's clearly that prison is just not the right place. for. And, and they're going to custody because there isn't, the, there isn't the, the alternative options in the community where she would be better supported and better treated. And, what, and so what we did on the back of that inspection was the chief inspector actually commissioned us to do a little piece of work um, where we we asked six prisons to give us their data on prisoners, including men, being sent to prison as a place of safety. It was interesting in itself because what, what it told us was that the was that HMPPS are just not collecting the data to actually establish the size of the problem or the nature of the problem or or indicate which which direction might be best to move in. So out of the six prisons. Two and they pri- were male and female prisons. Male and female, yeah. yeah. Out of the six prisons, two prisons says we can't do it because it, 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 it'll involve too much work because we're not collecting this data at all. And the other four prisons, one prison sent in loads of information, so they obviously had a system by which they were monitoring it themselves, so they must be concerned about it. And the other three prisons, their data wasn't very convincing. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't seem reliable. It, it, the numbers were much lower than the other prison who'd been able to identify loads of women. Um, So basically the conclusion we've come to, just doing that little piece of work, is the first step for HMPPS might well be to make sure that data collection is is comprehensive. Happening? Yeah, (laughs) and that somebody knows the size of the problem, where it exists. Is it certain courts doing it? it? Is it because certain parts of the country don't have community 
facilities. Yeah, what's causing it? Yeah, this is something that absolutely terrifies me. You know, I'm I'm really interested in policy and legislation and kind of laws changing and all of that. So we find ourselves in a place in 2021 where policies are being made, laws mm. are being changed, yet we know that the data isn't being gathered. So therefore, we know that we're creating policy off the back of either no data or completely unreliable data. Yes, yeah. Like, for example, the number of pregnant women, I think, has been counted and recorded for the first yes. time, and it's 2021. Yeah, it's scary. And it literally makes your head want to fall off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like women have never been pregnant before in prison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just find myself quite often, after 22 years of working in prisons, completely speechless. Um, the, the, the new um, leadership expectations that were introduced... Um, have quite a, a focus on the use of data and 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 that the chief inspector is very keen that we try and promote prisons into not only gathering data but using it intelligently and actually making changes on the back of that data because often what we find you you'll go into a prison and they will be collecting bits of data uh, but they're either not analyzing it well enough and certainly not using it to actually change things for a better direction so the use of data I think, within HMPPS has, has been pretty poor. Do you inspect the MOJ as well? No, no. You could suggest, you could suggest <laughs> that you to Charlie Taylor. <laughs> Just add a little bit more onto his workload. Well, when, we do, um, when we do thematic inspections, we do, we do tend to, because they're sort of like overarching inspections into a theme, and so we do tend to look upwards a bit more about what's happening policy-wise and, and what's driving things forward. So it, we do to that extent. Yeah, and... How on earth did you become an inspector? Because there might be lots of people listening to the podcast who and students who might be studying criminology and they're interested in the different roles within the justice system as a whole, not just the prison service. Um, so what was your sort of journey into becoming an inspector? Um, well, I'm 57 in two weeks. So I'm not going to cover 57 years <laughs> worth of it. You'd be glad to hear. Um I've always, I was always interested when I was very young in, in crime and why people commit crime and, uh, you know, how do you stop people committing crime? And I think it was only when I when I was doing A-levels, which shows how old I am probably, um, that I came across the idea of the probation service. So I went off to university, did a degree, uh, then spent a bit of time working as a social worker with young offenders and then joined the probation service. And, and spent, I was in West Yorkshire probation area, so I spent uh, a good few years as a probation officer, but also specialising in, in sort of group work programmes with offenders, whatever type of programmes they might be, including a women's uh, group. Um, and then after that, I was actually, um, I became a middle manager, specialising around effective practice and what works. And then I was lucky enough to get seconded into London to to help develop and roll out accredited programmes for the probation service. Okay, accredited programmes being the kind of programmes that have got the gold yes, to say. Yes, yes, yes. Like, things like the Thinking Skills programme. Okay. Uh, programmes for violent offending, etc. So I spent a, a few years doing that and then uh, moved into the probation inspectorate and then I was doing bits of prison inspecting and just found it so interesting that when a job was advertised, I moved from probation into the prison inspecting okay. world and then obviously became a team leader. Right. And what do you find so interesting about it or what makes you kind of leave a prison with a spring in your step going, great, I love my job. And because I imagine that a lot of it is actually 
quite depressing and can sort of take its toll, really, especially if you're not seeing um, progression. Yeah. I think what always surprises me is, is as an outsider, somebody who's never been into prison, you would think that they'd all be the same. You'd think that if you'd walk into prison A and then go to prison B, you're going to see pretty much the same thing. Well, you don't. They're sort of totally different. So that's always a surprise. Uh, but what what I really enjoy about it is is actually focusing on outcomes for prisoners and actually pushing the issues that prisoners feel are important as well. So, you know, the prison service itself might have forgotten certain things that are really important to prisoners, but the prison service over time have forgotten that it's important to anybody. And I think the other thing that I really hold strongly is is that actually going to prison is the punishment. Yeah, you don't need to keep punishing people and demoralising them and being treating them inhumanely while they're there. So actually just enabling prisoners to have a voice and, and say what's good and not so good and what's rubbish and poor about the place is really important. And, and have you seen... Um with the female estate and those 12 prisons in female prisons in England, um, over the time that you've been doing the job, yes, some things might have slid back. And of course, we're in the recovery stage. Um, the pandemic isn't over, but, you know, it feels like we're in a recovery stage, you know, crossing our fingers yeah. <laughs> very firmly. Um, do you think as an estate, it's in a better place, COVID aside, than it was 10, 20 years ago? Or do you think that perhaps it's not? You can pass if you want to. That's a really difficult one. <laughs> Let me just think for a second. Or maybe maybe um, it would be easier to say, okay, so today it's um, October 2021. Are the self-harm rates and the suicide rates now higher than they were before or are they decreasing? Because okay. I always hear different, yeah, different yeah, things yeah, on that. Yeah. One, of, one of the things that um, is a real concern in women's prisons is the level of um, self-harm. Uh, we know that during COVID, the self-harm rates for women increased dramatically, whereas for men, the recorded level of self-harm, and I, I say recorded because some of it might have gone unseen. Yeah, and we've just talked about data, haven't we? Yeah. The recorded level of self-harm for men has gone down in COVID, but for women, it's increased significantly. Over the last few months, there's about... I've just looked at the data coming down the train, actually. There's um, the last four or five months, there was over a thousand incidents per month across the women's estate. Thousand incidences per month. Across the women's estate. There's been three peaks during COVID. And strangely, well, not strangely, actually, probably not a surprise. The peaks seem to happen when the restrictions in prison got out of kilter with the restrictions in the community. Oh, interesting. Um, so when in the community, uh, the COVID restrictions started relaxing and people could go to each other's houses a bit more or meet up in a park and, and see their grandchildren and women in prison couldn't do that. Visits were still suspended. So massive peaks um, during COVID. But basically the data shows that the self-harm level for women in prison is five or six times higher than that for men, uh, particularly during COVID. So amazing high rates of um, self-harm. And a lot of that is... Uh, a small, a smallish number of women who who use self harm almost on a day to day basis. People will call them prolific self harmers. I don't, I don't particularly like that term, uh, but people, some women, have learned to use self harm on a day to day basis. Um, and in a prison I went to recently, a small number of women 
contributed three quarters of the self-harm incidents. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's huge. So what we really push for in our new expectations is for women's prisons to adopt a better response to to supporting women with multiple problems. Um, what we want to encourage women's prisons to do is is just not react to crisis by opening opening a support document, what's called an act. What we want prisons to do is is to really start supporting women on a day-to-day basis so that they can learn different coping mechanisms and also uh, they can just get day-to-day support to, to, to avoid crisis. So basically, rather than waiting for a crisis to happen, support the woman, enable her to develop better coping mechanisms and hopefully that will lead her away from day-to-day crisis. And the female offender strategy, which was published, I think it was um, June or July in 2018, wasn't it? Um, under the Secretary of State for Justice, um, David Gork at the time signed it off. And I know a lot about that because I sat on the female advisory board, which sort of helped feed into that document. Yeah, I've been, I've been on that as well. Right. And... Um, and I know there's a sort of review coming up of the female offender strategy because lots of recommendations were put forward, some of which are happening, some of which I think are happening in part, and maybe some of which there hasn't been any progress. But one of the things in there was um, the need to address trauma and to understand mm. what trauma is and to understand also the gender-specific nature of trauma. And when you look at the traumatic events that have brought women into prison, they're generally different to the traumatic events that have brought men into prison. Um, self-harm and violence in prison looks different uh, in the women's estate than it often does in the male estate. And also the way you de-escalate violence with women is different to how you de-escalate violence in men however the training for officers isn't very long and isn't very deep I don't think and I'm not sure it equips them particularly well to work in those different estates so can you say a bit around because the trauma work that's you know my organization has been doing a lot of and training the prison officers and trying to put interventions in for the men and women to be able to work through their traumatic past how much has that sort of infiltrated do you think the female estate and and how important is it because it's not just the officers that need to know about it you know the the prisoners themselves need to Mm -hmm. be able to understand some of their pasts in order to be able to create a better future in our new expectations we focus a lot on uh, we might not call it trauma informed Mm -hmm. but we focus on a lot of the principles um that that you would support around uh, the idea that a prison is a community that um, collaboration is really important, that safety has to be paramount, that people work together to to have hope and something for the future. So we, we, we've tried to describe that in our expectations. When we actually inspect, often what we find is the prison will, will say to us, oh, well, we've got 75% of our, of our officers trained in trauma-reformed awareness. Mm. And you go... And, yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> so when we go out onto the wings and we're speaking to, to the women and men, um, and we're speaking to the staff, we're, we're checking out things with them and we're observing as well. And often what we find is trauma-informedness uh, seems to me to sort of stop at the at the training room door and, mm. um, and officers and other staff uh, are not applying it as, as, as well as they could do. I'll just give you an example of a prison I was in a, a couple of years ago now. I was talking to this uh, woman in prison uh she started telling me about her life history and how she'd ended up in prison. 
Um, she started telling me about the domestic violence that she'd experienced over like 18 years. And just at that point, the tannoy kicks in to, to with an officer shouting, it's medication time. And you could literally see her start shaking and, and just clam up. And things like the use of tannoys, the slamming of doors, the oppressive nature of prisons uh, are really not what you'd want it to be in terms of trauma-informedness and also just staff attitudes. Yeah. You know, you, 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 know, you can't call people names and expect them to, to uh, feel any sort of respect or, or support from you. No, and it's one of the really difficult things, isn't it? Because actually... And I remember talking to the previous uh, chief inspector of prisons, Peter Clark, about this. Um, accountability is everything. Mm -hmm. So if a piece of work is going to go into whether it's the female estate or the male estate, um, if there is no accountability, if the senior management team don't have buy-in, if the governor doesn't have buy-in, for no matter what sort of package of work it is, whether mm. it's the trauma work, whether it's enabling environments, whether it's five-minute intervention, whatever it might be, there is no accountability, it seems to me. And no one will be saying, no, we've told you not to shout on the wings mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because actually it's really important, particularly in women's prisons where yeah, women yeah. have yeah. suffered domestic violence and often the shouting will happen before they're hit. Um, exactly. So how does one drive accountability into a prison? I mean, I'm not expecting you to be able to answer that because it's really tricky, but it comes back to your point about leadership yeah, in the expectations yeah. document. I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about this this whole prison approach, you know, from the governor downwards to this, you know, to get people to buy into this 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 important thing and, and middle managers, you know, holding their staff to account. So, you know, um, I can be stood on a wing and I'll, and I'll say to a prisoner, do you, do you normally are you normally allowed to vape outside your cell? And they'll say no, it's against the rules. And they stood there vaping, and you go like, well, do, do staff ever tell you? No, not often. And then suddenly a member staff will come over and tell him to stop vaping, and he'll say, well, that's the first time that's ever happened. So, yeah. so you know, allowing people to break the rules and and undermine this sense of belonging and community is not healthy for anybody. No. But uh, in terms of um, the leadership side of it, it's got it's got to start from that that starting point, hasn't it? And and staff um, have to buy into why it's important to behave in certain ways to people, and and, and people need to understand, I guess, um, how people end up in crime and how people end up getting out of crime, and what's important and what doesn't help. And but that ownership uh, needs to be there. And and sadly, in some places that we go to, you can see that the staff prison relationships are, are not based on that. You can see that um, that staff are not responding to some very basic requests from prisoners, which leads to prisoners getting frustrated, which leads to uh, uh, anger or violence or even self-harm, which then just spirals and creates an unhealthy atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So I could, I could give you loads of examples of, um, of, of where, that, where that's happened and, and, um, and how it just just filtrates through the environment. I mean, the um, the biggest difference between men and women's prisons is uh, you can walk into a man's prison and and you can feel the tension and you can you can feel that there's this potential uh, for something violent to happen. Um, in, in, the violence in men's prisons is can be really quite serious. It can be you know unexpected. It can involve weapons. And and so a man's prison, you will often feel that tension, and uh, and you'll you'll often be on your guard as you're walking around. In a women's prison, when you walk in, uh, in my experience anyway, the tension is about emotional tension. 
and it's about women who are struggling to cope uh, with their own lives, separated from the children, taken away from home, having have, not having much hope for the future. And you can feel a tension, but it's a very different sort of tension. And violence in women's prisons tends to be, not all the time, but tends to be lower level frustrations over some very basic things yeah. in life. And do women tend to... I always think, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, that women tend to internalise the violence mm, and yes, direct yeah. it towards themselves, yeah. whereas men tend to externalise yeah. it and they tend yeah. to sort of lash out in whatever way they might, that might be. So sort of riots, for example, yes. you don't get many riots in you don't. a women's prison. I'm not sure if there's ever been a riot in a women's that's prison. A, that's, a, that's a good point. I've not seen one. <laughs> yeah, and, and therefore there's a difficulty with policy when often if something happens in the male estate and there's a riot, um, mm. we went through a time, didn't we, a few years back where there was sort of copycat riots going yeah. on in prisons but then if you don't have gender gender specific policies i remember women saying to me you know we've all been sort of locked down more than usual or our release yeah. on temporary license right. has ended yeah. um because of some something yes. a man did in the yeah. male estate yeah. Yeah. and you just think that is absolutely crazy and, and, and often what happens is um a policy is developed mainly in relation to men and then gets applied to the women so there's something called the Challenge Support Intervention Plan, CSIP, which is a behaviour management type process. Okay. That was largely developed uh, uh, for implementation in men's prisons and then it also got implemented in the women's prisons, but it's actually less necessary. You can you can you can manage women's behaviour in, in different ways. You don't necessarily need the same systems. Yeah. So it's sometimes frustrating, I think, for prisons to see that uh, that they can be a, a second thought. Yeah, and, and, and you, you know, you mentioned release on temporary license, and that was a classic example of of that policy being applied to everybody, um, when actually it wasn't everybody who was to blame for some very serious further offending. Yeah, and then I imagine um, that that doesn't do much for the self harm rates if then yeah. suddenly the women are being punished for something that they know happened in in a male prison. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw our our report, um, which was about what happened to prisoners during lockdown. I'm not sure I did. It's, it's, it's on the website, or I can send it to you, but um, it, we did that quite quickly because we wanted it to have an immediate impact and we, we didn't want to take our time and then COVID a bit over. We shouldn't have rushed, should we, really? <laughs> but but um, um, what we did there was we went and, and, and inspectors spent a long time face-to-face -face with individual prisoners, men and women, and, and just let them tell the story about how COVID has impacted on them. Um, and in the report, we actually used direct quotes from them and they're actually voiced over by inspectors. And we had seemed to have loads of volunteers for that job. Um, <laughs> so the inspectors are actually reading out the quotes, but there's some really powerful quotes um, about uh, from prisoners. Uh, there was one quote from a, a male, a young male prisoner, I think it was, who said, you know, the impact of being locked up for so long for almost the entire day is just driving him stir crazy that he'll sit on his bed and count his fingers and count his toes, then count his fingers and count his toes, and then move things around from one bit of his table to his windowsill and then move them back again. And, you know, the, the actual impact that, you know, that, that confinement can have on people was, was huge. Yeah. So that, that's a, it's a really powerful report to have a look at if you get if you Maybe get a we'll put a link to the report in the footnotes of the podcast oh, yeah. so yeah, that anyone idea. listening, if they're interested, can, can yeah. go and have a look. 
And just finally, I wanted to ask about just another aspect of the female offender strategy, which was um, the sort of need beyond having women's centres, which are dotted around the country sort of nationally, um, the Ministry of Justice are developing residential women's centres. Mm. Um, and, you know, the need, because actually, you know, magistrates will say to me, well, nobody wants to imprison a woman for their own safety, but actually is it kinder than sending them out to nothing where they are in grave danger? Now, of course, this comes into the taxpayer's money being spent on something that it shouldn't be spent on because people should not be sent to prison for their own safety because, quite frankly, that is madness. But we find ourselves in a place where the probation system was all but decimated. It's now being reunified. So it's kind of like you know, they're rebuilding it as we speak. So it is a bit of a catch-22 situation, isn't it? Um, we do want women to be safe, but if there's nothing safe in the community, then what does one do? That That's the problem, isn't it? It's the lack of provision in the community. And uh, women's residential centres uh, would be a good option, uh, but it wouldn't fit everybody. So women who are being sent to prison as a place of safety are often quite acutely ill, mental health-wise, and even a centre like that might not be able to give them what they need. I think there needs to be much more community-based mental health services where women can actually tap into before they get to that point of crisis. So, you know, during COVID, the number of women who um, who have been arrested for assaulting an emergency worker has increased. And and when you look at some of those examples, it's actually about women in crisis who, who are lashing out at the nearest person, which might be a police officer or an ambulance worker. And it's not because they want, they're wanting to commit an offence, it's because they're, it's because they're in crisis and they need mental health support. So the residential centres, I think, are a good, hopefully, alternative to prison. Um, but it wouldn't. I don't think they will provide the total answer because there'll still be that need for mental health support. It's not the silver bullet. There's it's no not, silver it? bullet. If only there was, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how... how what the scope of those centres will be either, whether they would be available for women coming out of prison or is it just for is it just for an alternative to custody? So I'm not clear enough yeah. about what they will contribute other than, hopefully, an, another alternative for sentences to use. Yeah. Well, Sandra, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. I always learn so much through these podcasts. So thank you for coming along and, uh, and sharing your story. Oh, thank you. It's been good to meet you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 